Did he suffer? Yep. His car's up the road of here. Tires blown out with the spike strip. Intermuscular hemorrhage, fractured laryngeal skeleton, and ligature marks are all consistent with violent asphyxiation. Both his palms got rope burns. He's got fibers in his fingernails. He was alive the whole time. Until he wasn't. You was with him last night. What? The chief. When I called Jane to notify, she said that they were over at y'all's house for supper. Yeah. Was he acting strange? What do you mean? You know what strange means. Was he drunk? No. Uh -huh. A couple glasses of wine, maybe. Was he high? He might have done some blow. Sounds like quite a party. My kids were there. Your kids. Fuck you, you shiny fuck. What, are you interrogating me now? Why would I interrogate you? You're a cold motherfucker, Glass. Then why am I crying under here? into phase two, our David Bowie season, where we roll a dice and randomly review a David Bowie album, track by track. And in between each one, we've been doing these B-side episodes, these uh, these bonuses, where we usually talk about something related to whatever the next album is. Uh, of course, tonight is not related to Bowie. Well, I wouldn't say not at all. It isn't a little bit, but mostly it's related to our first season. And longtime listeners, we know you're out there. You interact with us on the Facebooks and the Twitters. Um, that is a, is a direct, uh, correlation to our first season, Nine Inch Nails. We already went through all their albums track by track, but guess what? Trent Reznor has got something new out. It is the score to, it's actually the first volume to the score of the first season of Watchmen. <laughs> what you just said, it sounded like a math problem, uh, from a second grade class, but go ahead, continue. Hey, man, I, I guess you guys can't see my chalkboard over there. All right. So <laughs> we did uh, up. We we, re we reviewed every Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross score in our first season. They have a new score. They have scored the show Watchmen for HBO, and they just released the first volume of that score. Volume one with th with two more releases planned by the end of the year. My God, get to the point. I just made my point. All right, these two uh, anxious, 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 not patient at all, bad boys in the corner. Uh, I've got the um, the king, our dear leader, captain, our captain, Mark Branstead. Hello, Eric. Uh, yes, that's right. And then uh, the other guy over there crackling like a troll under a bridge is uh, Stephen Earl. 
I'll crack you like a troll. Sounds sort of seductive. <laughs> Good one. Good one, Steve. Good one, Steve. So, hey, fellas, you want to talk about Watchmen? Yeah, before we get into brass tacks here, I mean, we're nailing this intro tonight. I mean, we're just like a Swiss train. <laughs> Anyhow, Steven. I thought my shit was good. <laughs> it was solid. It was rock solid, baby. Um, so, Steven, what's on the uh, the Newswire and the, uh, the Bowie Bulletins? Well, before I get to those, I'd like to know what a Swiss train has to do with it. <laughs> it's on time. And it's uh, a mechanically sound machine. Notoriously, it's true. Well, in some nine-inch news, uh, it sounds like something's finally getting released, right, Mark? Um, the score for this thing that we're going to be talking about? <laughs> oh, no, no. No, no, no. As teased during our interview with Rob Sheridan. Oh, yes. We got the, the definitive with teeth vinyl. Ah, yes. That's right. Uh, did either one of you go to your local record store, should they exist anymore, and pick one up for yourself? Yeah, I swung by the cave. They didn't have it. Oh, man. You buy yourself an old shirt from 1985? I did. <laughs> it was a Watchmen shirt. <laughs> there you go. Oh. This is all coming around. We are just dancing <laughs> together tonight, folks. <laughs> Oh man, you know what? This is gonna be the one that where Diane from Detroit gives us another shot. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the, uh, the 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 definitive vinyl, it's got it's got all the tracks from the original vinyl, but they sound better. It, it's got uh, more artwork and essays and stuff inside. Rob Sheridan's original art has been kind of remastered, and it's it's all in there in a nice package. So go out and get it. Thirty-five dollars at the Nin store. Uh, there's also a giant box set of the expanded Bird Box score. And we already made our feelings about Bird Box known, but uh, can't say I'm not intrigued to hear. He basically said, yeah, they only used a couple songs off this, but there here's two hours of music that we were just dicking around in our hotel room after our cold black and infinite tour. Check it out. I can't say I'm not intrigued. Yeah, that is unfortunate because I completely forgot about Bird Box until you mentioned that. Absolutely. When you started talking about Bird Box, I was actually thinking Birdman. Uh, I was like, wait, what's the connection there? But yeah, that was a forgettable movie. Right. Birdman had all that like rat tat tat, the uh, anxious jazz music in it. I would like to hear uh, Trent Reznor tackle that genre. I, I did want to point out that we we stumbled upon a, a David Bowie tribute show coming up in the Sacramento area called stargazing a bowie tribute show and uh it looks like it's gonna have a couple of bands there playing uh, the roa brothers band spacewalker the hey nows and the tipsy orchestrina who i do believe are the ones putting it on and they're going to do a full version of uh rise and fall of ziggy stardust it's here in sacramento and uh, Eric and I might go, and we'll try to get Mark to go, but we'll see. We'll try. We'll try. Um, sounds sounds good. That's in the that's uh, Friday Friday January tenth twenty twenty twelve dollars advanced fifteen day of the show, and uh, Harlow's is a good place to see a show. 
Yes. It's true. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to come and rub rub elbows with, uh, you know, your favorite uh, Bowie heads, then uh, we'll be among them. All righty. Well, shall we move on? Watchmen. Come gather around, people, wherever you roam. And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a soul It was a comic book And I owe Stephen uh, uh, my, my love of that book Because I had not read a single page until I until I uh, lived with Steven. Steven, what's your history with the book? I, I I heard about it a lot growing up in my teen years. When I was a, a, a comic collector as a kid, it was always mentioned quite often as the uh, pinnacle of the genre. And uh, it came out in 85, 86. I was born in 80, so really, it, I, I didn't read it when it first came out, obviously. But uh, in the early 90s, I started hearing about it, like in Wizard Magazine and whatnot. And then when I was a teenager, I bought it and read it, and I uh, fell in love with it. That's about it. Nice. Yeah, I uh, I was really late to the game on it. I did love comics as a kid, and I collected them, but it was primarily Batman. And then, like, I would just dive in the quarter bins, and I would pick up any, like, random old, like, Thor comic or, like, even bizarre, really bizarre stuff like... Um, Oh, there's the mutated hamster comic. Anyways, there's there's all sorts of weird shit I picked up back then. But I I, I did not have a knowledge of the of the good stuff, the uh, the Artur stuff, the Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons um, at that point. So uh, I grew up. Stephen got me back into comics in a big way when uh, in the early aughts when we lived together, and he had a collection. Uh, I just like sneak into his room and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, and dip my fingers in his, uh, bookshelf. You know what I mean? Those aren't pillows. <laughs> and that's that's where I grabbed this beautiful book. And uh, I did like it at the time. At the time, I thought it was kind of like a, a really cool mystery uh, about superheroes that were getting killed. But it was like adult, adult themes and it played into American politics. And then every time I reread it, you know, it kind of I, I realized the meta stuff more where it's looking at superheroes in history and also looking at like, how would our world change if superheroes like had gotten involved in wars and stuff like that so definitely grew an appreciation for it yeah it's a you know it's a it's it's a high watermark for the genre of course by this point 
if you never would have met me, you already would have read it because everyone's had it pushed pushed on them by by now. It, it's kind of become like you know, uh, the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band of comic books or something. So, you know, in in, in the eighties, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons they wanted to they wanted to re- do the same type of story, but with uh, the Charlton Comics characters who were uh, some like 1940s and 50s characters. They couldn't get the rights to them, so they just did these analogs. And uh, even though they do own, uh, they, they were their creations, and everything about the book was their story, uh, some shenanigans happened with the, uh, the, the property rights, and uh, Alan Moore walked away from it uh, being very burned years later. And uh, much like everything that gets... Um, adapted of his in Hollywood. He wants nothing to do with it. And I uh, kind of can't blame him. Right. So yeah, it's just a little bit of a backstory there. And uh, Mark, um, you, you've read Watchmen before, right? So my feelings on the Watchmen, uh, much like Eric, I didn't get back into comic books until I met Steve. We actually, me and Steven lived together uh, prior to him and Eric living together. So I got first crack at his, uh, comic book collection, shall I say. (laughs) Um, So he didn't show me Watchmen until much, much later. Um, And that was when we, uh, he told me that there was going to be a movie adaptation. And I thought I had been introduced to it, but I was thinking of this other book uh, called Powers. I think it was another book that Steve showed me. And when he was describing Watchmen uh, to me, I was like, is it about, so I was confusing the two titles, right? Then I went back, uh, read the graphic novel. Um, it was blew my mind. I was like, how the hell are they going to film this? And then eventually they filmed it. Um, but I don't really follow, you know, Alan Moore's, uh, uh, I guess, uh, writer discography, I guess. <laughs> His bibliography. It's called a bibli- bibliography, I yes. Got there. I got there. Uh, I landed that plane. So anyhow... That's that's all I got on Watchmen. So how do we all feel about the uh, movie, the Zack Snyder movie? I find it uh, <clears throat> exhausting in it in the whole in the whole movie in itself. But I can watch it in chunks and be thoroughly entertained for those chunks that I'm watching it. I mean, it's panel for panel a remake, which I don't know if that's ever been done before. Um, but it, they're for good and bad. I mean, there's those classic panels that you remember from the book seeing him come up and then in the comic you know when you have panels you don't know how much time is going by between the panels and i'm specifically like remembering one scene in the watchman where it's back in vietnam and uh the comedian has been having an affair with a local vietnamese woman and she's pregnant and he kills her in the bar and dr manhattan watches it happen and the scene's really powerful in the comic but in the movie they just go straight and boom, he shoots her and he goes, you didn't do anything, Dr. Manhattan. And they have this immediate conversation about like philosophical conversation right in that moment. And just does not, it just feels so forced. It's like, okay, you're just trying to get all these words out on, on, onto film before, you know, before we move on. Um, so it takes some of the atmosphere away, but, uh, but still it was quite an accomplishment. The casting is all pretty good in that. Um, it, yeah. Highly watchable. Music's pretty good. Um, if you wanted to see two superheroes fuck while listening to Leonard Cohen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
it it was Leonard Cohen's version, wasn't it? It wasn't yeah. Jeff Buckley. Yeah, no, no, it was it was Leonard Cohen's uh, Hallelujah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, it's fine. Yeah, I think they they kind of missed the point. Though I think the movie just it was all very surface level. It was all very like, oh, what this stuff would look cool on the on the on the silver screen, but uh, the tone and the intent of the story isn't there. Right. Yeah. I think this was Zack Snyder's first uh, shot going into uh, kind of a superhero genre movie, right? He didn't do Man of Steel at this point in his career. Because um, I think right. he made this one after his remake of, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Dawn of the Dead. Uh, and... Did he do Sucker Punch in between or was that after Watchmen? Ooh, I don't know. Sucker Punch I never watched. And that was like a, I think it's like a bunch of girls at like an insane asylum and they have like a fantasy adventure or something. Holy shit. That's right. Yes. Yeah, sucker punch. Now that you're mentioning it, I was like, why does this all sound familiar? It's like the, sh- the movie that was made by a hot topic uh, corporation. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think that was his first four way into in, for four way into uh, like purely green screen, blue screen filming. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's, that's the that's why his Dawn of the Dead remake, I think I look so fondly on it compared to his other work, is everything feels like it's completely boxed in by a green screen or like a studio set. Nothing really feels lived in or open or 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 um I don't know, relatable, but his his best work was the uh the Man of Steel trailer. Just that trailer. That's that's his best work. And I also forgot that he did 300. Or, yes, right? Zack Snyder did 300. that That was a Frank Miller comic, so there you go. Yeah, okay. All right, so back on, on topic here, uh, I think that th- the graphic novel really comes off as satirical um, and yeah. to the point, like, it's really biting satire, and I feel that, just to your guys' point, um, I think there was too much of a darker tone. Uh, there wasn't really moments to kind of see the satire, like Fight Club, for example, that's dark satire, but they're still man- able to manage that you're still sort of laughing a little bit. Um, it's not a comedy by any sake, but you know what I'm saying. This one, I think it was just bleak, you know, that we're all kind of fucked for the, the choices that humanity makes, you know, and, uh, the ending I didn't have a really a problem with, um, cause they do eliminate the whole squid thing in the Snyder movie. And, uh, so I don't know. Uh, the ending wasn't as powerful, I feel, because I can't necessarily remember all the details of the ending, but I know that Dr. Manhattan essentially takes the place of the giant squid or something. I I don't know. You guys remember that? Yeah, but the, th- but the thing is, yeah, that what they do is somehow they blame it on Dr. Manhattan. Yeah, I see, that's the problem. It, it, I think the ending is so kind of convoluted um, that I, I just I can't remember how, the details. that We can remember in the graphic novel is, you know, they brought something over from another dimension. And if we're, are we all caught up in the TV show? Yes. Yeah, yeah. 
they definitely show you can make a giant squid yes work just fine absolutely absolutely yeah so that brings us i guess to the uh so then the tv show we we talked about it when it was announced that that trent reznor and atticus ross would be doing the music um but uh let's see uh, on the production side it was created by Damon Lindenoff, is that? Am I saying his? Do I have his name right? Uh, I think it's a Lindelof. Damon Lindelof. Lindelof. Right, 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 right. And uh, what's he? What's he brought us? He's brought us Lost. Um, he also uh, developed uh, Leftovers for HBO. Um, I don't know if he had his initial. Uh, he cut his days with J.J. Uh, Abrams on Felicity or one of maybe those types of shows. Um, but I think he then took the creator role for Lost. I, I'm just not sure how far into that orbit that he was. And I think he also had a lot to do with Fringe as well. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a massive Fringe fan, as we talked about. Um, and you're a massive Lost fan, correct, Mark? Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Do you find that that, that, that one you can go back to once, you, once you've seen it? Um, I don't know how well it would age. I think you're right. Whether it be the acting really exposing itself to being television style acting, um, and then just the overall kind of tone that it takes. I don't know. It'd be hard to say if it if it really does hold a lot of reviewing. Going through the story once was, I think, more than satisfactory. So I don't know if I could revisit it. Oh, you know what movie he he wrote? Um, do you guys ever see that? It was like a straight-to-streaming movie. It was called Prometheus. It was a space movie with... Um, <clears throat> it had, like, Michael Fassbender in it and... Uh, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, that was straight I, to Netflix, huh? <laughs> Guy, Guy Pierce. You know, what, is it? what is this strange attempt at humor here? Prometheus. you never seen it? What's... <laughs> Yeah. Oh yes, shit! Of course I have. Oh god damn it! I was thinking of Pandora. Never mind. Prometheus is that fucking aliens movie. Fuck that. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah. Am I right? Prometheus is that is that alien movie, correct? Yes. I was like, for, like looking yes, it up. It is. I, so fuck. You were actually okay. being serious for a second. I was like, what are you? No, I in my head in my head it was uh, uh, Pandora, which was which was a fucking awesome space movie that came out around that exact same year. But did that have Michael Fassbender <laughs> in it not. as well? Not at all. You're gonna, you're gonna have fun editing that bad boy out there, Steve. Oh, it stays in. Like that no. kid stays in the picture. No, yeah, he, he he helped. That one's just frustrating. He helped. That's write. just frustrating. Rest in peace. <laughs> Rest in peace, Robert Evans. Um, no, he helped write uh, Star Trek uh, reboot and Star Trek Into Darkness, as well as Prometheus. Nice. And um, Prometheus looked really cool. Yeah. Did you watch? And then they made a sequel to that one called Covenant. Oh, that one said that slog. Yes, I've seen. Yeah. It. Yeah, that one's a slog. Oh, Tomorrowland. I mean, I saw it once and kind of forgot about it, but I thought it was kind of fun. Yeah, it was fine. Did you guys watch that? Oh yeah, I did. Yeah. If that was going to be a hit, there definitely would have been a new restructuring of the Tomorrowland land at you know the parks, guaranteed. But seeing how it didn't necessarily connect with any audience out there. But it wasn't bad. I thought that it was very entertaining. George Clooney doing his Clooney dog thing, you know? So, price of admission gets accomplished. And, I, you know, if it, if it would have made it, if it would have succeeded, you probably wouldn't have gotten your Star Wars universe land. That's probably true. You know? 
Alternate realities, my friend. Alternate timelines. <laughs> All right. I thought one of you guys would just whiff, you know, like you whiffed that. We're talking about alternate timelines. Robert Redford is the president. Uh, it's true. It's true. It's true. That's And that's where we're at. Um, I will just throw one last plug in for The Leftovers. I am a fan of that show, and I liked how it ended quite a bit. <clears throat> I watched it all in about three months and uh, and uh, quite enjoyed myself. So there you go. Um, that show brought us Carrie Coon, and she's uh, she is a treasure. So absolutely great in that Fargo limited series. That's right. That's right. All righty. Which shares a actress with this show. Oh, you're right. Yep. Season season two. Absolutely. And that does bring us to the cast of Damon Lindelof's reimagining of Watchmen, which is kind of a sequel. And uh, Eric, why don't you give us a cast call here? Who's in this thing? Sure. So in one of our lead roles, we have Regina King. Regina King is uh, has been in many, many things. She's a talented actress as well as a voice a- actress. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think, like, she's been in some big stuff like Ray or uh, Miss Congeniality, but I feel like, what's the first thing I saw her in? Eh, let me go back here to the 90s. 90s was a, was, a, was a bit of a, oh yeah, yeah, of course. Friday, Friday. She's, uh, she's one of the, the main characters in Friday. And uh, that, is a, that is a comedy that I stand by. And rest in peace, John Witherspoon, while we're on it. Your mother and I never would have moved in this neighborhood if we had known you need a gun to walk down the damn street. No, it is around here. Oh, no, son. That's not the way it is. You kids today are nothing but punks. Sissified. So quick to pick up a gun. You're scared to take an ass whipping. This one makes you a man. When I was growing up, this was all the protection we needed. You win some, you lose some. But you live, you live to fight another day. And you think you're a man with that gun in your hand, don't you? I'm a man without it. Put the gun down. Come on, put up your dukes. Now you're a man. Your uncle picked up a gun too. He had to find out the hard way. 22 years old. You got a choice. These are all you need. All right? But uh, Friday oh, yeah. is... Friday is great. It's a ridiculous pot comedy, but the way they build the world of just like of like a South Central kind of hood neighborhood, but they give it a lot of heart and a lot of character... And it is just ridiculous funny, too. And, like, on a no-budget film. Um, I stand by Friday. It's good stuff. Uh, she's in Jerry Maguire. She's in uh, Higher Learning. Yeah, there's... Uh, she's in Boys in the Hood. She is in Boys in the Hood. She's in uh, uh, 227. You guys remember that one? Two two seven had Jack K, right? 
Okay. Yep. Yeah, when we when we went to the wedding last weekend, we stayed in hotel room two two seven. We all had a well, Heather and I had a good laugh about that. Oh, I bet you had a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, all right. She was in the leftovers as well. Yo, yeah, that's right. Season two, where they go to that that weird town in Texas where everybody survived in this one little town. Yeah, that's a great season. I'm a yeah. Yeah, no, Regina King, pretty good actress. She does a great job in this show. Is Angela Abar. Uh, Tim Blake Nelson. Constant sorrow through his day. I am the man of constant sorrow. I've seen trouble all my day. Looking Glass, and we just got a whole episode about him. I'm sure we'll go into it in a minute, but uh, yeah, he he's actually been... he's actually from Oklahoma, in the real world. Yeah, he is a Coen Brothers regular. Showed up at oh, I think maybe Oh Brother, Where Art Thou might have been one of the first times I took notice. But he uh, he always just kind of plays that kind of southern, like kind of sweetly dumb guy very well. I enjoy him. He was Buster Scruggs. He was Buster Scruggs. Sang a little song right there. Uh, we got Jeremy Irons, uh, who has, you know, uh, you know, he was Scar, of course, in The Lion King. Um, he's in the fantastic Cronenberg film Dead Ringers. If you haven't seen that one, do yourself a favor. Um, and, uh, of course, he's Alfred Pennyworth in the uh, Zack Snyder Justice League movie. He is the, he's the villain in uh, Die Hard 3. Right. Hans Gruber's brother. That's right. It's a family affair. It's a great fucking movie. I Die Hard One Two Three, man. Just TKO right there. They're they're great. They are. They are. Tis the season too. Um, we also have, uh, of course, Miami Vice's own Don Johnson. Is a plays a small part, but an important part. In fact, one could say a, 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 a very important part. Um, and it's funny, Don Johnson. Uh, I, I just put two and two together while looking at uh, Damon Lindelof's credits. His one of his earliest credits was he was a one of the, the writers on Nash Bridges. There you go. There it is. He brought over his old friend Don. That's right. Yeah, We're I'm just a... waiting for Cheech to show up. I am a big Don Johnson fan. Yeah, yeah, no, he's because I remember he showed up in he showed up in uh, Eastbound and Down, and I feel like he was in something else recently too. He's just he, he's just he was in Django. Oh right, right. He's just kind of like a like an asshole, but like a lovable lovable asshole. He pulls that off pretty well in his old age. Yeah, it's wild how he turned into Jeff Bridges in his old age. When his in his younger days, he was you know. Miami Vice, and now he's turned into, like I said, the crazy old kook. <laughs> One could say that being Nash Bridges prepared him to be Jeff Bridges. 
Oh man, that's fair. <laughs> well, with that, man, this episode's gonna be uh, going behind a paywall. I mean, that's just <laughs> this content. Speaking of uh, crazy old hoots, we got Louis Gossett Jr. as the uh, or Louis Gossett Jr. as um, Will Reeves. And he's got a he's a very interesting character in this. What movie was uh The Iron Eagle himself? There it is. Thank you, Steven. See we got our work cut out for us. You are one sorry bunch. Take off your glasses. All right. Work, listen, obey. Then maybe, just maybe. Now move it. Move it! What did you say? That was my question. What was the name of that fighter plane movie? And then oh, yeah. Steven yeah. comes in. Yeah. Like an yeah. iron eagle. Like an iron eagle. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. Oh, boy. Oh. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Yeah, I'm probably oh. gonna have fun. Oh boy. Editing this thing together. We have oh, fun God. here. Oh, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> it's outrageous. Alright, question, question. Uh, trivia time. What film uh, did Louis Louis Gossett Jr. get an award for, Academy Award? Or nominated at least. I think he won, actually. Was it Glory? Was he even in that? <laughs> it wasn't Glory. No, he actually did. He actually did win. I don't think he was in Glory, but he was uh, best supporting actor in Officer and a Gentleman. There you go. There you go. With our boy Richard Gere. He's in a. He's in a terrible Jaws movie. He's in Jaws three. In the underwater sea world. Jaws three D. Jaws three D. Wow, that movie's garbage. But yeah, he's he's the security expert in that. So. Yes, we also have uh, Yahya Abdul Mateen II as uh, Cal Abar, Angela's husband. And that guy has a million dollar smile, my God. And uh, also Gene Smart. Designing women is uh, Lori Blake, the grown, grown up Silk Spectre. That's right. Uh, and just a little background on the show. Um, they aren't doing a remake of the comic at all. This all takes place like what, 35 years after the fact of the movie and the comic? Yeah? Uh, 30 years? Yep. It's about right. Yep. Yep. Um, so, all this stuff that happened in the comic and stuff, I mean, is presumably canon uh, for the show. Um, but they're kind of showing like what, what would modern history look like had all that stuff gone down. So, they're still dealing with, you know, some stuff like, you know, police, police brutality, 
Um, you got the Black Lives Matter versus Blue Lives Matter kind of storyline going on. You've got um, actual American history, um, like the, uh, what was it, the Tulsa, uh, well, I don't The Tulsa it, riot. It's referred to right, as a race yeah. riot, but it was, it was just a, it was just a full on attack on, because they, the, um, the black, black businessmen were, yeah, Black Wall Street. Black Wall Street massacre. And. That's how the show opens is with a, uh, a, a showing that. And um, I have to be honest, I I either never read enough about it or I never knew about that uh, tragedy until this TV show. Same. It, it, it's not something that we're, yeah, it's, we were not uh, in any of the schooling that we had. Uh, they really did not uh, dive into that in any of our history classes. Which is insane to me. Yeah, if it was... No, no, absolutely. Because it's a crazy tragedy. There's a lot of things that they do go over in public school about our nation's history that's not necessarily in the greatest of lights. Um, but I'm just surprised that this wasn't discussed in some of those more... Uh, as you kind of go higher into high school, depending on if your teacher likes to sit on a ladder while he lectures, uh, they generally will go over, you know, Howard Zinn's... American history and uh, talk a little bit about Chomsky, even in high school, at least uh, the one that me and Steven went to. Yeah, no, I, I don't know if it was, you know, because it was more recent and it's easier to talk about the, the bad things we have done when they're like a hundred years ago or whatever. But um, yeah, they definitely didn't talk about that. And it's, uh, it seems like it would have been worth mentioning to the youth. Yeah, Absolutely. So what's kind of cool about how this show's laid out is, you know, primarily the location is, you know, in Oklahoma, in Tulsa. Um, and you just see like uh, the way apparently there was a attack on police a while back. Now all the police have to wear masks and protect their identity. Um, there's all sorts of rules on when they can use their firearms. And you see, you hear little things here that, that harken back to the comic and, you get a little bit more every episode. You know that Dr. Manhattan's on the moon. Um, you know that Vite, Adrian Vite is up to something. Um, but the biggest impact is there's a essentially a gang of what appears to be um, racially motivated, um, essentially like white, white power, alt-right. It's an alt-right gang. <clears throat> and they're called the 7th Cavalry, but they all dress like Rorschach, which makes sense. <clears throat> Even though Rorschach wasn't that bad, he was a very right wing, right wing leaning um, uh, anti hero, um, libertarian. And actually, it's it's really smart. It's really smart the way they do that. To where in the original book, uh, he had his journal that he ended up uh, mailing to uh, the New Frontiersman magazine uh, right before he died. Essentially, a Breitbart. Right, yeah. and, I, and, and I could definitely see how someone could read that and, um, you know, out of context, amplify it to totally uh, misinterpret half the stuff he was saying or correctly interpret half of it and just go in the to a, a, a total hardline right wing direction with it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just kind of like how now people on the Internet just end up influencing others who don't want to really take the time to dissect anything properly. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it makes perfect sense. 
Right. And so that like in itself is fascinating enough. Um, but you can tell it's all kind of coming together um, because uh, Lady True is a um, a like science, like a, basically like a businesswoman, but science, but science is her focus. She's inspired by Adrian Veidt and she's building some sort of crazy tower near Tulsa. And that's kind of causing kind of like acting almost like a magnet for some of these Watchmen related incidents to come. So you you kind of see this story of these now masked cops dealing with their thing, their mystery. And, uh, and then you see, you know, the bigger story starting to unfold, um, which I, I, I think it's great. So anyways, that's kind of the, the, the premise. Let me know if I missed any, anything for the purpose of this episode, but. Well, and, and you know, also Regina King, her mentor is Don Johnson and he's killed. And it turns out that she learned some things about him that, uh, uh, make it very difficult for her to, look back on how the relationship worked and she's trying to work through that, that, that mystery. The narrative style uh, really jumps out at me, especially as we go into a couple episodes where it uh, stops centering on just Regina King's character, Angela Abar. Uh, last night's episode or not last night's, but last week's episode uh, centered around uh, Tim Blake Nelson's character. So that so sort of going in deeper into each individual character to not really give anyone a supporting um, role. Everyone is kind of lead in their in their own story, and then they those stories intersect. He does that in Lost. Uh, that was a huge uh, narrative trick that he loves to employ. Um, so that's what really like. Oh, I could see the beats that how he writes and how he presents things on television. I want to say he even did that um, same sort of trick as he was developing the leftovers or unless the source material is it. Yeah. Unless the source material kind of follows that same path in the middle of the comic book, there were some issues. It would take a step back and stick with the character for the majority of them. Like, uh, uh, Oh yeah. No, Dr. Manhattan on Mars for an issue. You're right. And so perhaps that's where he decided to get that narrative style. But you're right. I mean, so it's not like it's never been done before. It's just that it's a it's a well that Damon really loves to to go into to tell a story because he likes creating a mosaic, a puzzle for the audience to put together. And sometimes you need to go on onto this detail in order to see how it fits into that piece. Um, He just loves to do it that way. Yeah, no, I I, I love that. And I'm not saying that, you know, Watchmen is the first place that happened it's just a interesting coincidence that it's a style he likes in the source material here uh did the same thing i uh one thing and, and this is this is not necessarily meant to be a, a, a slight on lost because lost you know definitely had its moments but i feel like that style almost lends itself better to these shorter seasons because when you had uh you know 24 episodes to fill in lost and you're doing one of these like character background flashbacks, you know, every episode, the actual storyline gets to just scoot ahead at like an absolute snail's pace. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe I'm being unfair. You're not wrong um, because uh, it, you're 100% right. They've gone on record. Both him and Carlton Cuse, the other co-creator have said uh, they needed to get themselves an end date after they had season three, which was uh, apparently them just kind of, um, stalling for time as they tried to figure out where the story was going. And then they said, we have to put an end date on this. So that way we can really just stick to a path. Um, 
so but it, that that show has its flaws there's no there's no question uh, but yeah, that's, I would say that's definitely a signature of, of his, uh, writing style. And I think it's a good one. I mean, I think, you know, if I, no one can tell you, he can't make you care about these characters. So, so, um, yeah, we all agree. The show's pretty good. We're enjoying the ride. And, um, before we talk about the music in a moment, I want to ask each of you, what do you think is going on with what is my favorite part of the show? which are the interludes with uh, Ozzy Mendeus. You know what you are. <sighs> of course you don't. You are flaws in this thoughtless design. For while I may be your master, I am most definitely not your maker. <laughs> I would never have the gift of life but to be alive you have to have purpose and you have none except to serve <laughs> phenomenal <laughs> first of all why why did he choose that accent? I, I love it. I am not making fun of it. He's a very British man and he's doing kind of like a, I don't even know if it's somewhere between a Chicago and a, and a Southern accent. And, and uh, Ozzy Mendez always has a British accent. He could have just done his voice, but he's like, nope, I'm going to do it this way. And I, I, it's ridiculous. And I love it. It's like, it's like a British man doing a Southern accent while he's chewing gum. It's, <laughs> it's something. <laughs> I'm just happy he made that decision. I don't care how he got there. No, it's great. It's great. Uh, oh, yeah, I agree. Those little interludes are amazing. And it was I w <clears throat> up until recently, I was pretty sure it was going to be him or it was going to be Dr. Manhattan. I, it was going to be one of the two. And then and then it became pretty, pretty obvious. Um, and then flat, they flat out tell you. Uh, but I love it. And he's obviously up to something. He's making these clones. And... Uh, Oh, that scene where he births the clones and you see him grow up. <laughs> that was insane. When he's eating the cake. Yeah. Uh, my theory is that he's been banished to the negative zone. And this is him trying to figure out a way to escape. Um, and I, I know, obviously, DC Comics owns the... Uh, actually, whatever, whatever General Zod broke out of. Um, That's maybe it's the, the Phantom, Phantom Zone. Zone. The Phantom Zone. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's where he's at, uh, because, um, I feel that the Asian woman on earth is either trying to get him back with his telescope thing, um, or perhaps trying to summon Dr. Manhattan for some reason. And perhaps all of those two things are connected, um, where, you know, he's obviously yeah. somewhere in another dimension. That's what I'm thinking. Right. 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 Yeah, he's definitely a prisoner. And uh, it might be of Dr. Manhattan. I'm not sure. But um, uh, apparently he's on the moon of uh, Europa, one of Jupiter's moons, which is uh, Damon Lindelof came out and said that. So there you go. Nice. Yeah, you, finally, you saw him finally get through recently and <laughs> make his stack of bodies. Ah, oh, it's great. So it's a fun show. It's 
every time you see him, it's been a year, apparently. Oh. Really? Okay. Have you? Yeah. I, I know that there's that. an official uh, Watchmen podcast. I think with Damon. And, yes. Yeah. Is this where you're getting some of this uh, information? That is correct, sir. Have you been listening to that said podcast? And answer the question. I have. <laughs> uh, all right. So, uh, Mr. Smarty Pants, then, you're just trying to lead us astray, aren't you? Before we talk about the music, as far as the show goes, I think uh, there's been a lot of great performances. Do you guys have any anyone jump out of you with the performance? Yeah. I, it's really hard for me to say who's not really doing some heavy weight. Um I'd say uh, Jean Smart is killing it with the with the one-liners and the delivery. Like she's cracking me up every episode. Absolutely, I'm, I'm into Big it. Big fan of that. We are three for three. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> yeah, she's she's standout, and she was really good in Fargo too. She was like she kind of took over because she was married to Colonel Ty from Battlestar Galactica on that show, and he's like a he was like the the patriarch of a. Of like a mobster family essentially and she takes that's she takes right over after he has a stroke she's quite good yeah um so the music Nine Inch Nails related soundtrack work since the social network. That's my initial thoughts. I would probably second that. Absolutely. Because it was just very initially engaging where the sense like you don't want it to end. Um, it does take your mind through a little bit of a trip. And there are some times where I feel that it, it tries to harken back a little bit to that 1980 sound um, on some of the more synth heavy less dancey more uh i guess introspective uh kind of that spooky things that stranger things loves to employ right um but yeah excellent big fan yeah same um it's there's a couple tracks that are you know of his pretty ambient kind of thing that has been pretty much on all of his score work but um this is this has the most songs that have a drive to them that feel like complete song ideas, um, uh, other than like say Social Network and like half the songs on um, Vietnam War. I felt I felt um, did the same did the same thing. But these are just these are sometimes I, I I forget that I'm listening to a score and I think I'm listening to a like some like top tier ghost tracks or or, or instrumental tracks off an of Channel's album. They're, they're thumping. The synths are going crazy, uh, and there's big chunky guitars, and it's everything you like about Nine Inch Nails. I couldn't be more excited. I listen to it a few times a week. It's wonderful. I think these have a lot more of a point than anything off Ghosts does. Uh, I would say there's more rising action <laughs> than uh, there's more structure. Than, uh, yeah, structure. Yeah, yeah, that's probably fair. I'm just, I just met like the top two. There's like maybe three songs off Ghost that I think are top tier instrumental Nine Inch Nails songs. And I think these would, these would be among, 
among that that level of quality is all I was trying to say. Yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, some, uh, I mean, it's just him and Atticus. Uh, half, like I said, there's some ambient tracks, there's some big noisy tracks, and then there's some funny little interludes where they. It reminds me of. Uh, his early soundtrack work, Natural Born Killers and Lost Highway, where they do these little clips from the show. Uh, one time you hear the Seventh Cavalry talking, another time you hear. Um, well, one thing we didn't mention is, in the Watchmen show, they are watching a show about the original superheroes, the Minutemen, and it's done like one of those Ryan Murphy uh, American Horror Story type shows. It's called American Hero Story, and apparently Ryan Murphy was even going to cameo in it. <laughs> it's just like a little throwaway gag. It's almost like Invitation to Love from Twin Peaks. But they, they go to it a few times every episode. And they even do a little, like, snippet of the, um... They actually do a few snippets from that in the soundtrack. And they do a ridiculous, uh, like, trigger warning track where, you know, they're warning you about all the, all the, all the trouble that's about to happen in the show you're about to watch. Uh, it's a lot of fun, though. Yeah, I think a lot of this music really does a good job setting the... the the tone for the scenes and um, driving you from one scene to the next when it needs to. I, I don't know how much of the show was done before they got their hands on it, but um, like I can't imagine the show without this music. Like that episode, the Lori Blake episode, uh, where she tells that joke uh, about the brick. throughout the episode it's amazing and when you listen to that song by itself you're reminded about how great that episode is and like you can visually call back to some of the the parts that uh i don't know played out with her and them um yeah that song the brick man I, I, I think it's amazing it's such a good melding of uh just their music and uh, storytelling yeah funny enough they only had a they only had a script to the pilot when they started working on it so a lot of the music um, just came off of them doing that script and they turned some stuff in and I guess um, Lindelof was like, uh, give him some notes. And then Trent finally said like, well, I think he just wants us to do more Nine Inch Nails type songs. And that's fine. And, and, and that's what they ended up doing. Um, but yeah, no, agreed. The, some of the songs, there's uh, some, like, uh, there's some motifs that pop up a lot, like the opening track, How the West Was Won. There's a really creepy, just a creepy droned out sound that, that reoccurs quite a bit. Um, when I was watching that pilot episode and I almost just stood up and just started dancing was uh, the, the song when Regina King gets suited up for the first time, like Lady Knight or whatever she goes by. Like yeah, she, the Sister Knight. Sister Knight, when she gets suited up and they play None With A Motherfucking Gun. 
four on the floor little uh, little score track there, and I can't stop listening to that that song. It's it's great. Yeah, that song's definitely a highlight. Um, yeah, none with a motherfucking gun, the brick, and uh, absent friends and old ghosts are three great tracks off that uh, that first soundtrack. Um, the next one actually comes out in two days. Ooh, that's exciting. There you go. Yeah. Uh, qu- quick plug for the track uh, No Surrender is a big, loud uh, thumper as well. well uh, Mark, any tracks stand out to you? Uh, I mean, all the ones that you guys were naming. Um, that None with a motherfucking gun. I wouldn't be surprised if they bring that to their next live shows. Uh, it's It's that good. Oh man, the, the fucking the bass line in that song is ridiculous. It's just ab- absurd. When the, the it's got that kind of like Peter Hook New Order bass, if you know what I'm yes. saying. Yes, it's like a you it's know? it's like a distorted bass, but you can tell they're playing it live. It's not a it's not like a yeah a bass synth. They're they're playing that bad boy live, and it's yeah, it's good. And also, a lot of these tracks, especially "No with the Motherfucking Gun," has an excellent guitar whoosh. So yeah, yeah, guitar whoosh is back in a in a big way. Um, it's kind of cool on the release for these on the vinyl release. Um, there's all sorts of Easter eggs for the Watchmen universe in there specifically. And I, I was laughing out loud when I was, when I was reading this, there is reference to the band, uh, pale horse, which I think was referenced in the, um, the various comic books. Pale horse was yeah, a, yeah. Uh, I, I just reread the, the entire comic book actually last week. And they mention. You know the the night of uh, when the squid happens, uh, Pale Horse is playing at Madison Square Garden, and in some of the issues leading up to it, like there's posters for it, and you see that people are talking about the show. So, right, yeah, yeah. and they're like they're like essentially an '80s hair metal band, and apparently like their latter work in, in all the back matter in this vinyl, apparently like they're 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 uh, and oh, and they also released a review, a fake review for an actual like. Uh, Kerrang or one of the one of the uh, the rock magazines I can't remember which one but they released a fake review for one of Pale Horse's albums which just panning it saying like oh yeah they're new stuff they're just they're all trying to like they're making like they made a whole theme album about Rorschach's journal and they're all inspired by Rorschach and it's just they're, they're considered like the worst band in the world now and that's Nine Inch Nails is leaning into that joke as well by putting Pale Horse material in their vinyl and uh, releasing fake reviews for their albums which is kind of funny they got into it I guess and then it turns out to be uh, the name of the movie that Steven Spielberg ends up making instead of Schindler's List in this universe. <laughs> I don't know if you if you caught that when uh, when Trixie from Deadwood's talking to Tim Blake Nelson, and she's she's describing a movie called Pale Horse by Steven Spielberg, and she goes into the scene where it's uh, all black and white except for a girl in a red dress. It's fun. All the world building, the little details here and there is great. So, yeah. Well, there it is. Highly recommended. Highly recommended for you Nine Inch Nails fans, you listeners that that have been with us this whole time. Well, I'm sure everybody's already heard this stuff. Well, that's our that's our that's our two cents on it at least. Tim Blake Nelson is he dead or alive? Um. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to tune in to find out. Yeah, yeah. Well, what do you, what do you guys think? 
Um, well, you can't. I, he, he's got to still be with us. He's got to still be. Yeah. He's There's more him. stories out of him. You thought the same could have been said for Don Johnson. True. Well, he's coming. Apparently, he's coming back in whatever crazy dream dra- hallucinations that uh, that uh, our our hero is going to have next episode. So. All right. Well, I think we should close the book on this one. Um, join us next time when we talk about David Bowie's twenty fourth album release, which was Heathen. This has been Mark. This has been Eric, and this has been a loopy ass episode. We'll, uh, I don't know, maybe we'll lean into this and make uh, Heathen twice as loopy. Why not? Oh boy, let's do it. And this is Steve. Laszlo Panaflex. <laughs> we hope that we brought you all closer to Pod.